Yeah, which you don't all have <laughs> tattoos of Roy Orbison on your butt? <laughs> well, let's. I'm going to plead the fifth on that particular question, but let's just say that there was some, you know, not everything is totally false. Welcome to the Stand Firm podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, here today with J.D. Koch of Christ Anglican Church in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. J.D., we're joined today by a special guest. Uh, Matt Kennedy is allegedly not out in the woods today, but is uh, prepping a conference talk. Our guest today is Michael Neal, who, in addition to studying Christian worldview, apologetics, and philosophy for a B.A. at Boyce College and an MA at the University of Missouri at St. Louis is a former law enforcement officer and detective and currently director of family ministry at my church, Grace Anglican in Louisville. So Michael, welcome. Am I a great boss or the greatest boss? The best, the best I've ever had. Glad to be here. Thank you. It's one of the heavily, most, most heavily regimented uh, family ministries, um, you know, that, that exists on earth. Very well-disciplined. Um, That's training. right. Yeah. That's right. Full of push-ups, burpees, <laughs> and right. lots of jujitsu. So. That's right. Full is a holistic, we call that holistic uh, <laughs> discipleship. Right. Well-rounded. <laughs> well, listen, guys, today we're going to talk about what everybody was talking about early in the week before the big debate last night. Uh, we're recording this on Wednesday morning, September 30th. I'm sure you all have debate thoughts, but I couldn't bring myself to watch. So we're not doing that yet. Early in the week, though, the big topic was Amy Coney Barrett, President Trump's nominee for the Supreme Court seat left empty by the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Really, though, the topic was Barrett's children, and specifically the two Haitian children she adopted, this became a big topic of conversation because of Ibram Kendi's tweet that some white colonizers adopted black children, with the adopted in scare quotes there. Then he tweeted, they civilized them, scare quotes again, these savage children in the superior ways of white people, using them as props in their lifelong pictures of denial, while cutting the biological parents of these children out of the picture of humanity. Now, he's since said that he wasn't necessarily referring to Judge Barrett and that he was not saying that all white adopters of black children are necessarily racists, but simply that adopting a black child doesn't necessarily prove that you're not a racist. In any event, I thought it would be fruitful for us today to discuss adoption, its status as a long-held societal good, and the role that it plays as a biblical image and in the Christian story. Along the way, I'm sure we'll also discuss Kendi's work, his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. So, fellas and Mike, welcome to The Crucible. Where do you want to start? Well, I think it's interesting that he had to pull back um, from his initial quote, I think primarily because for a while there, it was um, it seemed to be one of the um, like uh, things to do among particularly high-profile celebrities in Hollywood was to adopt, um, you know, sort of minority children or specifically from Africa um, and sort of make a big show of mm -hmm. this blended interracial uh, reality, which I think is actually quite beautiful. Um, but of course, he was questioning uh, the sort of motives behind that, which I assume he, um, you know, will appropriately and probably with some pressure uh, pulled back from. But it does, it does bring uh, into, into sort of, well, uh, let's put it this way. It exposes the logic, I think, of his entire anti-racist 
program, which is that if you uh, somehow, quote unquote, impose or, or just raise, for that matter, a, a child in a culture that is not the one that they would sort of, I guess, naturally have um, had been raised in, you know, whether ethnically or, or um, sort of nationally or something, then that is some sort of cultural appropriation um, and or colonialism that is to be um, questioned, if not avoided. And so you see in his book itself, the very question of uh, whether or not a particular culture and the way he defines culture is um, in some places rather profound, you know, sort of like the, the fundamental bedrock of a particular people. And it's often also very um, banal. It's like, you know, what people wear, you know, or like the way that they tie their shoes or something. I mean, it's, it's really kind of, he, it's, it's rather fluid, this idea of culture, but he'll argue that to prioritize any culture or to even um, desire a particular kind of cultural standard over against another is a form of racism. And so, you know, mm -hmm. if you were, for instance, going to take, um, you know, you look at Amy Coney Barrett, for instance, they were taking these kids who I don't know their particular situation, but I do have family members who've adopted Haitian orphans out of terrible conditions in orphanages there. And I guess if you take his logic to its end, then they would be better off uh, having remained there than to have been planted into, you know, Midwestern um, white Americana um, or something. And I think he had to pull back from what he said, but I think what he actually said was the logical end of what he, certainly what he has written, if not what he actually believes. Yeah. I mean, that, that seems right to me. Um, and, it, and it's, it's a, his pulling back is, you know, sort of a strange thing because he, you know, Nick and I were talking about this earlier. I mean, he's, he's very clear uh, in his book. He's very clear in the interviews he's given on the book and talks that he doesn't want to make evaluative judgments about culture. But uh, I think he realizes, oh, I kind of have to do that because if we don't do that, it leads to some real absurdities, you know like the one you were saying, I mean, leaving kids in a obviously worse spot, you know, compared to being here in a Midwest white family. I mean, well, yeah. Um, and I appreciate, I mean, his book and his, his interview with Ezra Klein just corroborated this, but his book, mm -hmm. um, you can see the unfolding is sort of an autobiography really. I mean, of mm -hmm. his kind of his development, he's a little bit younger than, than I am. I guess he's your age, Mike, but he, um, but you can see his sort of wrestling with the implications of how fundamental this sort of racialized view of the world is. And he comes out at the end that it is the most important thing. Like it is the most important thing, um, white, black, or otherwise. And so he's been fairly consistent about what that means is that if there is a, um, you know, if there is a defined quote unquote whiteness, which of course you could, he says in the book, is often a quote euphemism for, um, or Western civilization is often a quote euphemism for white supremacy, you know, so you, you get that type of language. Well, then this is the logical outflowing that there's no possible way to adopt someone that's not in your particular culture without imposing a would be oppressive. Um, of course, you know, mm -hmm. to take that out to its logical end, I mean, the reductio absurdum would be, that means that you could never you, you can never adopt anyone, you know, unless, I mean, and then, you know, and then of course it also speaks to the right, real right. problem at the heart of all of this anti-racist talk, which is that fundamentally they're arguing that we can't actually communicate like right. we are, we can't actually right. um, have a, a, a basis that's deeper for our unity than our race, um, which is 
synonymous for culture right. and, um, and, and fundamental human identity. I mean, I ran into this actually because we have an adopted child, John, um, or my son, um, and he knows that. I mean, he's, well, he's four, so he's, <laughs> he's, he hasn't, hasn't fully right. settled in yet. Uh, but, um, but we're in the process of adopting again. And we had to go through essentially a version of this uh, anti-racist training, which we had already been well acquainted with, Nick, because the Episcopal Church, you know, yeah. is well ahead of all this, um, the, the, the great most important issues in life. And I was asked, you know, will you, how will you raise a multi-ethnic child? How will you raise, you know, pretending on what culture he or she comes from? And we had to really consider these things. And, you know, there's a certain aspect where you wouldn't, obviously, particularly in the case of like Coney Barrett, you have this clear differentiation between their biological children and their adopted children, you know, that's going to raise some concerns uh, or raise some questions, I should say. But to the extent that they're raising those children differently, I wonder what that, if that looks like anything or if it, or, or, I mean, I, I would be interested to know or whether what, that would be a good thing. Right. Well, how would that even happen? I mean, what I was asking the people is like, what, what would you want me to do that wouldn't fall prey immediately to some sort of sad stereotype that you have of right. whatever this culture that I'm, you know, like, do I need to, like for a Haitian kid, you know, do I need to, I don't know, do I need to uh, speak, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, I don't know. I mean, it, I, I, don't, I don't even want to say anything. in your religious, <laughs> you know. I don't even want to say anything because it makes yeah, me right. so comfortable. It's like, it would be like, you know, all of those Waterboy movies about quote unquote, Louisiana. Like I'm from Louisiana. Like I know that, that Bobby Boucher does not represent your average uh, Baton Rouge uh, person. And yet, you know, that was somebody's idea of what it was like to grow up in Louisiana. Um, it, which you don't all have <laughs> tattoos of Roy Orbison on your butt? <laughs> well, let's, I'm going to plead the fifth on that particular question. But let's just say that there was some, you know, not everything is totally false. Uh, <laughs> but I do know that the concept saying about racism and anti-racism is not necessarily tied to your to your skin color. I mean, that's what's interesting about it is so it has to do more with a sort of an ideology about what you consider to be um, what you consider to be uh, sort of fundamentally important about a particular people group. And so if you were, for instance, married into um, an interracial marriage as a, as a white person, um, then you could be an anti-racist if you were aware of all of your privilege and you essentially divested yourself of that and simultaneously, you know, with the, the, the um, hashtag, do the work, you know, yeah. do the work of educating yourself constantly um, about all the things that you didn't know, which would come as a result of simply listening to your wife or your husband, as the case might be, um, mm-hmm. you know, sort of educating you. And so you could, as it were, what's, what's sort of interesting about it, and I don't fully understand, you can, as it were, kind of appropriate another culture. Um, you, can, you can be an anti-racist and, and sort of work within another culture, but at the same time to, to say, to, to, to sort of, to, I mean, that, that seems to be what people have been doing, but for whatever reason, it's, it's not enough if you say that, for instance, you're doing it because you're, you know, you're, you're colorblind, you know, that's a racist right. thing to say. Yeah. Um, but see, the difficulty that Kendi is getting into, which is going to be um, continually exposed, is that once you, once you get out of um, sort of biological determinants, you know, melatonin levels, you know, once you actually get out of actual sort of race, as a 
biological consideration or that whole discussion. But once you get, once you start adding into these other identities, which he does in the book, you know, LGBTQ, he talks about how these, these other identities begin to become aspects of these fundamental cultures too. Well, then you end up in this place, particularly with intersectionality, where you are a, you individually are a um, unique sort of snowflake, you know, in the world. And I guess you only have the choice of whether or not to communicate with someone else um, you know, sort of as a, as a, a missionary to their solipsistic world too, but there's no actual mm-hmm. unity that you can find across, across people. And it's, it's really quite. And JD, it's worth pointing out, they call this standpoint epistemology is, uh, as I understand it anyway, is really what's fundamentally driving all of these ideas that, uh, and it's just this side, this idea that you cannot, fully understand where someone else is coming from. That's basically That's what right. it is, which is a yeah. completely un- unbiblical idea. You won't, you'll search scripture in vain to find a place where Jews and Gentiles simply cannot communicate. That's just, it's antithetical to a Christian worldview. It's well, laid out in scripture. Yeah, it's the exact, it's a, it's an outworking of that old, um, you know, like high school atheist well, they didn't have websites back when in high school, but now they would. You know, the blind men of Hindustan, you know, they're all standing mm-hmm. around the, the elephant. You know, that's essentially a pis- uh, standpoint epistemology that like there's a, you know, you know, the, you know, the, the, the picture. There's, there's six men standing around an elephant and one grabs the, mm-hmm. the tusk and says, you know, oh, it's hard and wooden. One grabs the tail, oh, it's bushy and, you know, one grabs the ear, it's floppy. And the argument always there, and I've heard this in sermons, actually, quote unquote sermons, is that that's essentially how we understand God. You know, there's a lot of people standing around this great question, and we all have our different ideas of it, and therefore we can't know exactly what is going on. The difficulty with that, though, is that there still is an elephant, and it's not just an animal, it's an elephant. Like, it's a known commodity, and so your ignorance may have you think that what you're touching is just a wooden spear, but there is there is an actual being there. You're just wrong. Exactly. You're just wrong. And I think that's where, you know, we get back to the, um, to the whole argument of the Bible that there is a, you know, there's two books in the world. Uh, there's the book of nature and the book of divine revelation. I mean, Kant saw this in his religion within the limits of um, reason alone. he said that if we can't find God simply on our own reason, and we have to um, rely on some sort of external revelation well then that is the death leap the the salto mortal day um that my latin my my italian's really good um <laughs> i liked our, your our, your arm motion though really helped yeah um and, and that's probably not even italian but anyway uh, <laughs> the, uh, but he um uh, my pig latin's the best but he um but but he said this he said that if there was some appeal well then that was the death of reason and that makes sense because if you couldn't derive God fundamentally out of our own exercise of reason, well, then you would have to rely on an external miraculous source, which of course, Christ, Jews and Christians have always said, well, exactly. Yeah. This is why we have prophets. This our elephant we... spoke to us. That's right. Our <laughs> elephant came to earth and gave us a word. So even though we are the blind men of Hinduism, it's fine if you want to use that image, but our elephant said, hey, here's what I'm like. Let me yeah. tell you. That's right. It like blew water all over us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, it was like <laughs> Oh Lord have mercy. Um no, but that's but see, that's the fundamental I think that's the fundamental problem um with this entire line of, of reasoning is not that I think any thoughtful person doesn't appreciate that there have been cultural wrongs done in the past. You know, there are people who have blind and 
totally self-absorbed uh, uh, sense of their superiority over other people. I mean, there are all sorts of sins. I mean, there's no lack of sin in the human body politic that we can point to and hope to redress. But he's not talking about specific. He's talking about reordering the, the foundations, about how we even understand, you know, humanity. Um, so, for instance, you have to start arguing you have to start looking at inequity is one of his big things. You know, if there's any uh, divergence in outcomes of any particular people, uh, well, then it has to fundamentally be a racial problem. It can't be, mm-hmm. you know, educational, can't be, those all might be, those all might be factors within it, but fundamentally it's a racial problem. And, you know, so that just shuts down the conversation when you have people who say, well, you know, maybe race is a component and maybe there's a history about it. But what about education? What about um, environmental factors? What about um, family structures? What about all these other things uh, that could also be a contributing factor? And so we're not saying yes. that race isn't part of it, but we're mm-hmm. saying that it's not the, the only thing that's part of it. And that's where the conversation has gotten stuck because if you, if you wanted to help someone of another culture uh, under this anti-racist uh, sort of ideology, well then to point out areas that you think you could maybe help fix that didn't have to do with fundamentally confessing your racism on the outset, then you would be considered part of the problem, not the solution. Right. Yeah. And so this reminds me of something that uh, I read in uh, Amy Wax's book, actually Coleman Hughes talks about this in one of his articles on Quillette, Uh, Amy Wax. I think she's a law professor at UPenn and she's uh, her book is uh, race wrongs and remedies. It's a pretty good book. If for nothing else, at least for this one illustration, I'm going to tell you about, and then also for the citations in it, but uh, she, history is messy. And I think that one of the things that is often overlooked and, you know, by the, the woke, so to speak, uh, is that just how messy history is. And there can be lots of contributing factors to these disparities and, and Kendi and lots of other people don't seem to see this. And, and some of these can be self-imposed and we don't like to talk about that because it sounds like uh, victim blaming, but um, I mean, it's not like we can't imagine scenarios for which that's true. And so I'll give you one from Amy Wax's book. It's uh, the uh, parable of pedestrian. Have you all heard this before? No. This re- um, so, uh, she tells this story, and I, this is sort of a, a rough and ready version of it, but it's like, you know, you have this uh, pedestrian, he's walking down the sidewalk, um, not doing anything negligent, just walking. Um, car flies off the road because the driver's doing something that is negligent, let's say, whatever that, that negligent texting. activity is. He's texting. Texting, yeah. Uh, definitely yeah. that. <laughs> Always right. texting. But so the driver's texting, flies off the road, hits the pedestrian, injures the pedestrian. And there's some legal ease tied to all this and then civil law to uh, explain what type of reparation this is. I don't remember what it is, but basically the driver of the car has this obligation to now make the, the pedestrian whole. Now there's a problem though in the real world and that the pedestrian may be paralyzed now. And um, that ailment is not something that any amount of money or effort or whatever on the part of the driver is going to be able to overcome. Now the driver might be able to offset that sum by paying all the medical bills, um, giving all kinds of other money and resources and stuff to the pedestrian, but uh, it won't fix the fundamental problem of being paralyzed. And you, you could tell the story in such a way that the pedestrian uh, is only temporarily paralyzed provided uh, he or she does their physical therapy. But then what happens if the pedestrian fails to, or just refuses to do his or her physical therapy? 
then they're left in you're left with a sort of a messy situation down the road where you're now trying to assign culpability to whatever negative outcomes the pedestrian might experience for loss. And it's not going to carve all that space up because yes, the driver was being negligent and put, you know, did everything, you know, he or she could after the fact to make the pedestrian whole. But uh, as it turns out, the pedestrian had a responsibility too to take what the situation she was dealt and do certain things with it. And when that doesn't happen, when you don't take advantage of that, then you have some culpability too, it seems like. And I think history is, is messy in, in that, that kind of way, I guess. And I think that's often overlooked. And these discussions. No, I think that's for a good point. Worth. I mean, I think this is the the limits of human justice we see in the um, in the Bible itself. I mean, the the ultimate judgment on human sin was the death of Christ, and yet even the benefits of that will only be known upon you know the with the, in the eschaton. You know, this side of heaven, um, our justice uh, that we seek for is marred by sin, is imperfect, mm-hmm. and ultimately unsatisfying. I mean, I think about like yes. the reparations that people get paid when they have wrongful death suits, you know? It's like, well, mm-hmm. I'd rather my three-year-old kid back. Like, I don't, you know, thank you for your $20 million, but, you know, you could have not prescribed them that, and I would, right. I'd be happy to be living in my room house instead of, you right. know, crying every night in my mansion. I mean, this is, you know, so we do what we can, and I think that's part of the difficulty with this conversation, Michael, you and I have been talking about with respect to a way a lot of Christian people are getting sucked into um, this anti-racist talk, which is that, you know, from a very, very basic Christian perspective, when someone comes to you and says, there's, there's inequity, there's been past discrimination, there's some, some kids in particular, you know, like Sally Struthers back in the day, you know, just put a sick kid that's starving, um, you know, up and all of a sudden pockets you know, thankfully people open their, their wallets, you know? And so I'm right along with you. Like, what can we do? How can we help? Um, you know, what needs to change, you know? So we get into this discussion, right. but then when but, the discussion- you, but people are very upset when you even asking that question, if, if you ask the question too broadly to include everyone uh, and not just, uh, you know, white folks or That's the, right. the, those who aren't woke, um, they're like, wait a second, this is just victim blaming. But I mean, that's right. sort of the point of the parable of pedestrian. It's like, it, 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 if you're thinking about that rightly, at least in my mind, you're going to say, oh, well, the pedestrian has some, some level of responsibility here. Well, I think that's a good, good point. And I think this is why I'm grateful for Kennedy's tweet, because I think exposing the, I think the absurdity of the, of the end of this way of thinking, which is going to, I hope, you know, which is fine for some intellectual exercise. Um, that's good because we want to hit the wall. You know, we want to hit, you know, we want to take our thinking to some logical end and then pull back from it. If it turns out that the logical end is a, is a place no one wants to live. And so you've got the entire spectrum now from like right. Anna and Angelina Jolie to Amy Coney Barrett and, you know, a friend next door to you who have done everything they could, not with great fanfare. You know, maybe some people have actually adopted a child to be a accessory. Like maybe they exist, you know, and, and sinful realities would say that maybe there's a percentage of that. But most of the people I know have not been tweeting about it, don't have blue checks, don't have like a big, um, you know, Facebook page, don't lead with their like as a parent of a, you know, minority child or anything like this. They just, you know, either couldn't have children or wanted to, to, to bring more children into their home uh, and shower them with love, affection, comfort, and all of the gifts that we have been given to share with our neighbor. And those people are now being implicated 
into this sort of racist, anti-racist world. And I think they're going to push back. I think they should. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that, and I think Amy Coney Barrett, to the extent that she even acknowledges that sort of criticism, um, will, you know, maybe simply acknowledge it by the reality of her of her life, uh, which is, you know, part of a very Christian thing to do, you know, just let the, the witness of your life, you know, show forth. But I think I was grateful for the, the, the tweet, uh, particularly because having just finished his book, I was wondering, you know, how is the, how is the everyday person going to be able to, to digest this in such a way that they're, they're critical of it, not dismissive. I don't think anyone can mm-hmm. be dismissive of it because it's a real argument. But I think you need to be critically discerning of what he's saying so that you can we can we can take what he good from it and we can push back on some of the on some of the assumptions. You know, it's like Francis Schaeffer used to say that the work of the Christian apologist was to to gently and with great humility lead people to the logical end of their false assumptions. You know, mm-hmm. and so this is what I think we're doing with or that Kendi is helping us along by his tweeting, which is that the false assumption is that what's constitutive of humanity is their race and that cultures are racially biased, uh, I mean, tied to our, our, our racial realities as opposed to um, sort of our uh, sociological realities, for lack of a better word. You know, like monogamy is not a racial concept, you know, mm-hmm. fidelity, hard work. Like these things, contrary to what the yeah. Smithsonian said, are, are transracial and mm-hmm. seem to be positive general goods for right. wherever they are found, you know, whether it's in the, the farthest corner of China or to the end of, Chile and back, you know, and so to argue in that kind of quantifiable hierarchical way of, of relative goods over against relative ills is not a racist, a racist thing to do. Now that people have, have taken that and said, well, this race is superior to that and this, I mean, that is a, that is a historical error, a sin where it was, where it was embraced by the church. And to the extent that it exists, it can be repented of and changed, but it is not, um, the, the, the idea is not fundamental. As you get into a situation where you begin wondering which people have, um, you know, can we teach people to read? You know, can we teach people math? Like, can we teach like logic? Like, are these, you know, Aristotle, I mean, sort of Pythagoras. I mean, these were. Right. Well, there's been pushback uh, on that front that, that you know, to be overly analytic is basically in some way. um, I've not really heard a good explanation for exactly how this is the case, but it's to embrace uh, white patriarchy somehow. No, for sure. Well, and then when you get into Christianity in particular, you know, you look at the the great um, identity sort of cultural norms that that God um, has revealed in the scripture about men and women, about marriage, about monogamy, about uh, having children, about how to raise them, about private property, you know, thou shalt not Mm -hmm. steal. I mean, these are all things that are divinely inspired, not by white Eurocentric, you know, what is, I keep getting rage rage against the machine in my head. (laughs) (laughs) Remember that song? Um, That's right, I do. That's rage. (laughs) Well, they were were like clearly ahead of the game. No, they have a song Uh, called uh, Wake Up. I I couldn't believe it. Yeah. But your point um, is well taken because those things were revealed not to white people. They were revealed to Middle Eastern people. That's right. That's right. Not and a white person among them. And then propagated entirely through North African, you know, hubs. Um, yeah. And then ultimately mm-hmm. rediscovered by some white people, if you like to use that term, which I don't, I don't I find uncomfortable even saying, 
Um, but, you know, St. Augustine, not a white man, or uh, certainly not Euro, Euro Anglo, uh, was, was right. the champion in the rediscovery of the, all of the reformers, you know, so, so they were appropriating North African theology, which was a translation of Middle Eastern, you know, <laughs> uh, ancient Near Eastern uh, thought um, for the sake of sort of Western civilization, but to, to argue somehow, I mean, it's just, it's just patently and blatantly false to argue that the Christian in particular impetus for these things lies with, with, um, you know, dead white men. I mean, that's just, uh, it's laughable. Right. And the, and the right. idea that it's being perpetuated is really just an indication of how ignorant most um, of the quote unquote elite are of genuine Christian theology. I mean, did you see the AP tweet about Amy Coney Barrett. It's like, she's apparently a part of some religion that considers the man, the quote, head of the family. It's like, well, you know, there's been a lot of ways to interpret that verse directly from the Bible, but that it is in the Bible and that it has been a part of just restating the verse. (laughs) That's right. I mean, yeah. I mean, you have people that will read that um, and interpret it, you know, a hundred different ways and that's fine. But the idea Mm -hmm. that that the literal existence of that phrase is a, um, you know, something to be frightened of just shows how far the sort of cultural um, currency of Christianity has fallen, Um, you know, and uh, which is fine. I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm, according to some, I lament that simply because my privileged position of power has now been called into question. And this, this, this incredible uh, throne that I was planning on ascending when I went to Ambridge to learn how to uh, preach and do theology, where I knew that the rest of my life, I would simply be a marionette operator with all of these minions (laughs) below me, like, uh, (laughs) like the emperor in, in Star Wars, like, Boy, I really am sad that's not happening. It was really, they sold me a bill of goods. So this reminds me of a number of things I've I've seen over the years as I've just paid close attention to these things. I mean, just there, there is, there's this sense that there's something inherently wrong with white folks that's not true of people of color, let's say. Um, and you that really, it, like, for example, let me just g- give you a couple things here. So, um, Kendi, he said in his interview with Ezra Klein, the only thing wrong with black folks is that they think there's something wrong with black folks. ta Coates. People are always asking me what's wrong with the black community, and I always tell them there's nothing wrong with the black community that wouldn't be solved with the eradication of white racism. These are... If you if you understand them, I mean, take them at least at face value, and I think they're in the a broader context of what these gentlemen have said in their writings and interviews. I mean, you you don't have you can't have these statements fit nicely into a Christian worldview. That it it just can't be true that if you remove white racism from a particular people group, that they won't have any problems. Original just our commitment to original sin doesn't allow us to reach that conclusion. And this isn't something that this isn't a new idea. You just, you could run this back in history. You can get online right now and go watch an old episode of uh, Donahue where uh, Khaled Muhammad, he was a former spokesperson for the uh, nation of Islam. He ended up leaving um, just like Malcolm did. You, you know, I mean, he was, he was scolded just like Malcolm was. He also ended up murdered just like Malcolm was. Uh, it's kind of interesting, but um he, he said the same thing. Um, I think they were talking about uh, world slavery or something and, and or, or living uh, whites and blacks living, you know, peacefully, you know, among one another and so on. And he said, look, we've, we just, in the history of the world, you can't find where this has happened. And it's not because of the black man, it's because white folks have been the ones who, you know, they thought they were the, the marionette, you know, they, they, they thought they were 
running stuff and had to uh, subjugate people. So it's just, what you said just reminds me of, uh, of these kinds of uh, ideas, I guess, that are, they run deep in this sort of woke ideology. I'm afraid that a lot of people, especially in the church, they don't really realize what, what's underneath these things and what they're dealing with. I agree with that. I think that's a good point about the church, Mike, because, you know, I, people keep asking like, well, what do we do? You know, what do we, um, how do we combat this? Or at least how do we, how do we, you know, what, 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 how do we equip ourselves to navigate this, this world? If this is going to be part of our lexicon, you know, if this, if this mm-hmm. anti-racist um, vocabulary becomes uh, part of our uh, house of being, you know, as Heidegger would say, you know, the, 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 the literary house of being, well, you know, I think first step is we have to be aware of it. You know, I think most people should at least read, you actually can get most of Kendi's ideas from how to uh, anti-racist baby. Uh, this is a board book that he wrote, and it mm-hmm. has all of basically all of the um, the chapters are uh, condensed into a little uh, couplet. Um, so you know, I, I can I don't have one off the top of my head, but I did buy a copy of it. Um, just put have in my library. <laughs> but anyway, uh, but I think you know to be educate yourself about about the the um, the language so you can hear it when it's being spoken, but also right. some of the implications you know, and some of the fundamental sort of non-Christian assumptions about the world, uh, most notably that, that we are divided by our race as opposed to united in our sin and need for redemption. That's right. That's right. Actually yep. what we're united by. That's and right. then fundamentally we do the work, ironically, that like Amy Coney Barrett's doing, you know, you, I mean, not necessarily adopting children uh, that are not, uh, you know, that are, that are biracial or, or someone culture other than yours, but maybe, or, na- or maybe more importantly, not caring one way or the other, and simply doing the work of being fruitful and multiplying, you know, whatever that means, whether that's, you know, um, in your own family, in your church, in your town, and, um, and you know, trying to be self-aware and repenting of the, to the extent that there is partiality and perhaps even racism to a certain degree. You know, people have different mm-hmm. and negative experiences with black, white, brown, people of color, people of white. I mean, people have issues with other people that can, can metastasize. And so we need to be fully aware of that. We need to be um, cognizant and repentant, but fundamentally we can't be shied away on the account of being sort of culturally insensitive and worse, you know, racist, which is a terrible thing to be accused of, uh, simply by um, holding on to the deeper magic, as C.S. Lewis would say, you know, the deeper truth about who we are, that if I adopt this child that happens to be a different color than I am, that I will love him or her no differently, will interact with her no differently, and will mm-hmm. ultimately witness and preach to her or him in the exact same way that I would hope someone would do to me and hope someone does to, to people um, around the world. And I think that's a, mm-hmm. that's going to come up into, that's going to come into conflict with critical race theory. It's going to come into conflict with um, critical theory in general, because mm-hmm. it is a, it is a counter totalizing um, meta narrative, you know, which is um, going to have some overlap, but fundamentally going to be um, um, at odds with people who, who have a racialized view of the world or a, um, a sort of a redemptive view of the world. And I think, um, you know, educating um, ourselves prayerfully and do what First Peter says, you know, with all gentleness, humility, and respect to be prepared in season and out with a hope for the hope that you have within you. So how could you possibly have hope that somehow this child that you adopt will, um, will ever interact with you? How could you possibly hope that this person you're going to marry, you know, that there's so many differences between you two that you could probably, you can never overcome them. Well, that may be what you believe, but that's not what I believe. And if you want to know more about why I believe that, then, um, 
then come to church. You know? Right. Right. And the hope yeah. that is within us, just as we wrap up here, we didn't have a lot of opportunity to talk about the biblical use of adoption as an image. Maybe we can at some future point, but the hope is that a person who is different from his or her creator can in fact be reconciled. And that's, that's an adoptive image. We are not like the yeah. God who made us. We must be adopted back mm-hmm. into his family by the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's, that adoption is what we're hanging everything on, and that is good news. And, um, you know, that's, that's the, the central image of adoption in Scripture. There are w- ways we can talk about it outside of that, but that is the fundamental good news of adoption, that, that a sinner can be adopted back into the family of a holy God. And um, obviously human adoption is but a pale shadow of that, but, but it is the same image. And then, you know, as we do, as we do each week, we've, we've come to the end of our time with uh, significantly more that could be said. Um, Hope that you will continue this conversation with us. Thank you for joining our conversation today. If you'd like to keep it ongoing, please do um, send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes. We have been receiving emails. Thank you so much for them. We'll be um, trying to address them in upcoming episodes. Thank you this week to Michael Neal for joining us and to J.D. Koch. Matt Kennedy will be back with us next week. I'm Nick Lannon. We'll see you next time. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Mm